English is said to be one of the hardest languages to learn due to our inconsistent spelling and grammar rules. I'm your host, Leah. And I'm Phil. And I'm Steve. Or could it be from the strange way we have of turning a phrase? Today we'll talk about idioms, phrases, and colloquialisms. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. And I had a, a co-worker, Miss Phyllis Teasdale, who gave us a suggestion that we do a, an episode on idioms, and we kind of touched on it on our leftover episode last uh, last year in December. But we decided we'd dive into it a little bit deeper. So That's let's right. let's talk about words, shall Get we? Get your big bowl out for this one, folks. <laughs> in everyday language use, many concepts are expressed by multi-word expressions, such as break the ice which means to relieve social tension by means of a remark. These expressions are commonly known as idioms. They can be among the most difficult concepts for learners of a new language to acquire, as the specific words may have little or nothing to do with the concepts that they convey. From an article on idioms in front, it's, okay, it's either frontiersin.org or it's frontiersin.org. I'm not <laughs> sure it's F-O-R-O-N-T-I-E-R-S-I-N.org. We'll go for the first one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we learned about two researchers named Polly and Sider who in 1983 determined that there are literally hundreds of thousands of idioms in the English language. I don't doubt that. Two of the main sources of English language idioms are the Bible, particularly the King James Version of the Bible. And, of course, the bard, William Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Part of our episode today will focus on idioms from these two sources. And kind of as an aside here, I don't know if any of you knew this before, there is kind of a mysterious connection between the King James Bible and William Shakespeare. Have you ever done this? Uh, If you look at Psalm 46 in the King James Version of the Bible, start counting the words from the beginning. The 46th word from the top is shake. And then count the words from the end backwards. The 46th word is spear. Hmm, That's right. Is this just a uh, coincidence? (laughs) Or did perhaps the bard or someone decide to place a little homage to Shakespeare in the midst of the Psalms? (laughs) The King James was purchased. uh, I'm sorry. The King James was uh, published in the year 1610. Shakespeare was lived from uh, 1564 to 1616, so it is possible mm. that he may have had a hand in the translation and in the writing of the King James Version. Uh, might have even left a little, little uh, what we, we call it, an Easter egg in there for us. Yeah. <laughs> Easter egg. <laughs> Self-promoting Easter so, egg, yeah. Whether it really happened, uh, that mystery will probably never be solved. So let's look at some biblical phrases first. Uh, From a website called worldhistory.org, we find a terrific article by Dr. Rebecca DeNova, D-E-N-O-V-A, titled 50 Biblical Phrases, Idioms, and Metaphors. We are grateful to Dr. DeNova and worldhistory.org for allowing us to quote directly from this fine article. And if World History is looking for a podcast to sponsor... 
We're, we're happy to talk with That's you. That's a joke that we're like, we're, we're beating a dead going. horse. Right. There's, an, there's an idiom <laughs> for you. Sooner or later, all you got to do is find one, right? That's right. Just got to hook them. Anyway, in this article, she describes 50 commonly used idioms and metaphors that originate from the Bible. Now, we're not going to cover all of them, but uh, we'll cover several of the most familiar. And we'll start with one that I think everybody has heard, fall from grace. Imagine someone who held a high and respected position in an organization or in a community. They have a carefully maintained public image. Then word leaks out that behind the scenes, the reality of their life doesn't match the publicly groomed image. Their public image takes a terrifying tumble. They may even lose their place of employment. This actually has recently happened here uh, in our area uh, to a prominent professional athlete. So, such an individual has experienced a fall from grace. The phrase comes from the story of the disobedience of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, which resulted in their fall from immortality in the Garden of Eden into mortality. And the phrase is uh, most often utilized to describe a high-status individual who has fallen on hard times or is now subject to social disdain, a fall from grace. No, we can we can name a lot of yes. a lot of folks. <laughs> now, how about this one? This also comes from Genesis. My brother's keeper. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in chapter four of Genesis, we learn about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain murdered Abel because he was jealous of God's favor toward him. In verse nine, we read, quote, "Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother, Abel?" I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, God wasn't too pleased with this response. And the phrase today has come to mean that, yes, we are responsible for our behavior toward others. So You know, that's my kids have said that to, to me, and I'm, I'm just as displeased. <laughs> <laughs> Am I my brother's keeper? I ask you a question. Just answer it. <laughs> All right, now here's a good one. Old as Methuselah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another one from Genesis. Refers to the age of several of the early patriarchs, Methuselah was the oldest of those referenced, having lived 969 years. Today, to refer to someone or something as being as old as Methuselah, we take it to mean that that person or thing referenced is very old indeed. And didn't we, we I talked to you about one over the weekend. Did you remember that? There's a tree somewhere out in uh, uh, California, I believe it is. It's called the Methuselah tree because it's, it seems seemingly is a very That's old right. tree. That's right. Now, how about this one? Manna from heaven, and also kind of going along with it, man does not live by bread alone. Uh, the book of Exodus tells of Moses leading the Jewish people out of Egypt to their promised land. Along the way, they were fed with an unusual source of nourishment. Each morning, God sent manna to them. Uh, to, to help them survive. Manna was a wafer-like substance that appeared on plants with the morning dew. Today, the phrase manna from heaven indicates a divine intervention or an unexpected gift from God. Mm-hmm. Now, the manna was great at first. <laughs> <coughs> but then... <laughs> but then some of the folks began to complain about the lack of variety. Okay, there was a great old song uh, <laughs> Keith Green about 40 years ago uh, that I heard called You Want to Go Back to Egypt and they were he was complaining about all the different kinds That's of ways right. you can make ma- manna, manna <laughs> bread, filet of manna. That's hilarious. I've never heard of that. And but, then, uh, but you know, it wasn't spicy. It was very bland. I, I think was... so. He, he, and the, the, some words in the song said, we once complained for something new to munch. The ground opened up and had some of us for lunch. So anyway. <laughs> 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 I 
going to look this song up. That's, That's hilarious. Awesome. So God then reminded the Israelites that life is more than survival, but that the soul should be nourished as well. Uh, quote, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So today the phrase, man does not live by bread alone, is often used as a reminder that life is more than mere survival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I love this one. This is one of my favorite ones. The writing is on the wall. I know, I liked it. I think this was one of the ones that uh, that <laughs> I was surprised came from the Bible. I had no idea for yeah. a long time that yep. this one came from the Bible. The fifth chapter of the book of Daniel tells an interesting story. The time is during the reign of the Babylonian king Belshazzar. He was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, who had conquered, the, uh, conquered Jerusalem, sacked the temple, and taken the Jews captive back to Babylon. One night, Belshazzar threw a wild party for over a thousand of, su- of his subjects. He got the bright idea of bringing the golden cups and bowls from the Jewish temple and using them for party wine goblets. Everything was merry until suddenly a giant hand appeared and began writing on the palace wall. When King Belshazzar saw this, he was so terrified that his, le- his knees literally were knocking together. When Daniel was called to interpret the message... It wasn't good news for the king. His life was about to be taken from him, and his kingdom was going to be divided among his enemies. Today, the phrase, writing is on the wall, is an expression meaning that there is no way out of a bad situation. That's right. The writing's on the wall. Now, skin and bones and skin of my teeth. I guess I didn't realize these were biblical expressions, but actually from the book of Job. Job suffered uh, relentlessly as a test of his faithfulness to God. Quote, I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. That was in Job chapter 19. Both of those in the same uh, right. same verse there. I'm thinking if you got skin on your teeth, you need to see the dentist. Yeah. <laughs> you need a good cleaning. Today, skin and bones refers to the bare essentials of life, while skin of my teeth indicates a very narrow margin for something to happen, as in a narrow escape from a dangerous situation by the skin of my teeth. And then there's weighed in the balance. When Job's friends claim that he must have sinned to account for his suffering, Job responded, Let God weigh me in honest scales, and he will know that I am blameless. This phrase also appeared back in Daniel in reply to King Belshazzar. After the writing on the wall incident, Daniel said, quote, You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Oh. Uh, in, uh, in biblical times, scales were of the balance beam variety. So today being weighed in, uh, weighed in the balance, well, it's kind of come to mean giving equal consideration to two opposing viewpoints, weighing things in the balance. Okay, well, let's take a break from the Bible and, and come across this uh, misunderstood phrases. So these are some phrases that many people, possibly you, probably you, me, all get wrong. Um, no, really? Well, maybe not all of us get wrong, but, no, but you, I bet, I'm going to bet that you get at least one of these wrong. So here we go. Um, for all intents and purposes. A lot of people say it uh, for all intensive all intensive yeah, purpose, 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 purposes, yeah. which I mean, if you say, I mean, it sounds like it when you say that, uh, <laughs> but it doesn't make any sense. So if you say for all intensive purposes, you mean for all those very thorough purposes, which doesn't purposes. make any sense. Yeah, right. So for all intents. And purposes means for all the reasons I did this and all the outcomes, which does make sense. 
And also, this next one makes me think of Barney Five. Oh, hello. Nip it. Oh, here we go. Nip it in the bud. Yeah. Nip it. <laughs> the phrase means stump, stopping something in the very beginning stages, like stopping your child from developing a bad habit right. the very first time you notice it. The, the saying is nip it in the bud, as in cutting <laughs> off a new growth of plant, not... Nip it in the butt, yeah, <laughs> like biting something, someone in the rear, like a vicious dog would do. By, by the way, the term Barney Fife has uh, become a term of its own to uh, oh, yeah, an inefficient yeah. police officer. You know, he's a Barney true. Fife. That's true. We've got a lot of small towns <laughs> right. around here, and those those police officers are definitely yeah, yeah, Barney they're, Fives. They're, they're, they're just waiting qualified. for you to 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 speed. Nip it, you know, <laughs> nip it in the butt. Okay, so this next one is like should have, would have, could have. Should have, would have, could have. Should have, would have, could have. It's not should of. It sounds like it, but it's should have. Should have. You should have. The contraction of that, though, makes it sound like the word is, is you know, using the word of in there. Yeah, should have. Yeah. Uh, which, okay, and, and so that's incorrect. The should have, would have, could have. I mean, if you're using it as a contraction, that's fine. Right. But if you're writing it down and you write the word of, you're wrong. You're wrong, yeah. Um, but it also reminds me of chest of drawers. Chester drawers, yeah. <laughs> yeah not, chest, not Chester, but yes, Chester, Chester drawers. Uh, that is, so when people say Chester drawers, <laughs> makes me think that somebody named their underwear Chester. Chester yeah. <laughs> I got what? my Chester underwear, my Agatha underwear. You know. <laughs> well, just a Chester drawer. I mean, just a whole, the whole piece yeah. of furniture was I thought was a Chester drawers. But Chester know? drawers. But Chester your drawers. Boris underwear can't be be lacy. <laughs> just so we're saying. That's right. <laughs> Oh wait a minute! <laughs> this episode you're, comes you're after. Just throw, I know you're just throwing this out there. We yeah. just recorded the criminal episode where it was illegal in Russia to wear lacy underwear. Yeah. That's where go, that's coming they would from. It's been a holdover. Long. Yes, <laughs> there's an episode in between this one. Which is fine. Go back and listen to that listen one. You'll see what we're talking about. Oh, you'll laugh. Okay. Really okay. Okay. Bring it back in. I could care less. Versus I couldn't care less, which is the correct You're saying. Oh. This is a phrase I wish would just go away. This one gets misused yeah, if, if all the time. If I could care less, time. then I'm going to yeah. care less. So you do care. So, yeah. You Wait, know, people's – okay, so said correctly, it's a double negative. Everyone says it wrong, even though it clearly makes no sense. And I think even when they're saying it, they know it's wrong. Right. And and when it said right, I couldn't care less. It just sounds – it's awkward and cumbersome, cumbersome way of saying I don't care. Yeah. Like, just, like, say just say it. I don't, I don't care. It's a lot shorter to say, I don't care. <laughs> so that reminds just... me of our Remnant Stew Christmas party when we were trying to figure out this game. <laughs> and Leah's husband all of a sudden said, I've got a good case of I don't care. <laughs> That's right. That's and then so we're all true. like, you know what? Me too. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I was really, really happy Paul said that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Another thing coming. Have you said that before? You got another no, thing you got coming. Another, another thing, thing coming. coming. That's right. You probably have been saying it incorrectly. The the actual saying is centuries old and it's longer. It says if you if that's what you think, then you've got another think coming. Oh, okay. And to me, that sounds very Dr. Seussical. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the things you can think if only you try. Thing one and um, thing two. There's another one coming. Okay. <laughs> No, wait a minute. That is yeah. thing. Oh, I messed it up. I'm sorry. There you go. <laughs> think one, think two. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then, have you heard that someone is uh, the spitting image of their dad or, yeah, or okay. whatever? Yeah, that's right. And I didn't know that. Okay, so this is one that I've, I've been consistently getting wrong. Not that I even really say that, but Apparently. Um, I've heard this all my life the wrong way. It's actually supposed to be the spit 
and image. No, and, I didn't know that. And it originates from the Bible, kind of, okay. kind of. It's, okay. The Bible says that God created Adam from dust and breathed life into him. Over the centuries, though, the story had kind of morphed into the idea that God created Adam out of mud and his own divine spit. Okay. <laughs> you know, to kind of like make right. a, like, well, you, gotta like, get you know, make clay. Well, right, 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 gotcha. He didn't and, have starch, apparently. <laughs> so this, <laughs> this evolved into a metaphor for parents spitting to create children that look just like them. And the saying spit and image was formed over okay. time. It transferred, transformed into spitting image. The spitting metaphor. image. Okay. Yeah. And you know, so here's the thing. Language changes over the time. Oh, and yeah, in just this way. So who's to say what's right or wrong? Eventually the wrong becomes the preferred language and thus becomes quote, right. Right. Um, but not Chester doors. That's still That's very still funny weird. and very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, then we have, uh, well, I've heard this one a lot. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we're done with, with, Things being wrong. Um, this is a saying that means that you humbly admit you're wrong about something that you were strongly convinced you were right about. Eat crow. Oh, yeah. You got to uh, eat yeah. some crow. And it's such an odd phrase. Can you imagine being, you know, English is your second language and hearing somebody say, oh, well, I've got to eat yeah. some crow. <laughs> yeah. Um, this actually also has ties in the Bible that it, in that the crow was an animal deemed to be unclean and unfit for eating. Right. <clears throat> no one is certain, though, where the saying came from exactly. But according to English-Grammar-Lessons.com, one origin of the saying happened near the end of the Great War of 1812 when a U.S. soldier crossed over enemy lines to hunt for food. He accidentally shot a crow during his trip, and a British soldier caught him in the act. <coughs> he then forced him to eat the bird. After taking a bite, the soldier managed to catch the Brit off guard and wrestled his, back his gun from the soldier. And then he forced the British soldier to take a bite of the crow. Forced him now, to eat the crow. Okay. Now, I'm not sure if that's that's Makes a good story. It probably but, didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the term goodbye, uh, also from E-T-Y-M-O. Okay. So E-T-Y-M online.com. So kind of like etymology on online.com. Yeah, online. Okay. Goodbye came from the 1590s term G-O-D-B-W. Y E. So God, God Y. Y. I don't know exactly how that's pronounced, but it stands in it. It's it was around the eight, 1570s that it was used. It's a contraction of God be with you. Oh, I can see. God we. God, God we. we. God yeah, I don't you. know. God be with you. Okay. And so and so then that morphed into God goodbye. Okay. Um, also influenced the terms good day, good evening, good night, uh -huh. and similar in sediment to the term farewell. So it, it just is, is wishing, when you part with someone, wishing them blessings and goodness. Um, okay. This is also seen in the term lullaby, as you would lull a baby to sleep with hopes of God be with you. Okay. So there you go. Lullaby, God be with you. All right. Uh, let's look at some more um Biblical phrases. Now, this one was made well known in a popular song back in the '60s. It's uh, for everything there is a season. Turn, turn, yeah. turn. The Book of Ecclesiastes is a source of several common phrases. The book is essentially a collection of an old man's reflections on life. Most believe that Solomon was the author of Ecclesiastes. Among the most well-known idioms from the book are, quote, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Uh, this was, of course, made quite famous by the 1965 song from a group called The Birds. 
Their song included quite a few quotes from Ecclesiastes, and there are some other idioms uh, that were included. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing, nothing new, new under, under the, the sun. sun. That's yeah, right. There's nothing new under the sun from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, now, this one I didn't realize was uh, in the Bible until I researched this. It says uh, in uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 10.1, As dead flies give perfume or ointment a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So we've heard the expression, oh. a fly in the ointment. Okay. So, you know, a little fly, a fly messes up something that's really good, so a little, like a little folly can mess up, can outweigh wisdom and honor. That's right. Uh, and then there's eat, drink, and be merry. From Ecclesiastes 8, I think he might have been taking that one a bit out of context. <laughs> that was there. Now, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah gives us several common phrases. One is, a drop in the bucket, meaning a small amount are of little significance. And the quote actually is, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust, as Isaiah 40, 15. Or here in South Texas, spitting in the wind. Spitting in the wind, yeah. <laughs> now, how about no rest for the wicked? Uh, it's an indication that though the wicked may prosper now, God's justice will weigh them uh, in the end. And the quote is, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. That's in Isaiah 48, 22. Mm. And then there's, like a lamb to the slaughter. A uh, famous quote, mm. he said, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7, and that expression was later utilized in the New Testament to describe the crucifixion of Christ. Now, today, that expression, as a lamb before, uh, let's see, as a lamb to, to the, the slaughter, slaughter, often means that an innocent person, referring to an innocent person that has no idea what is about to happen to them. Right, mm -hmm. right. Now, um, in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, we have a, the famous statement, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, and Matthew details the account where some doubters stated that Jesus was able to cast out devils because he was the devil himself. Jesus exposed <laughs> the folly of this poor reasoning by stating, quote, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Uh, the line has come to mean that disagreement in a group will lead to its downfall, and it was famously used by Abraham Lincoln in an anti-slavery speech in 1858, the House yep. Divided speech. Um, casting pearls before swine. The quote is actually, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. That's from Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Casting pearls before swine is to provide something prized or valuable to someone who does not appreciate it or is not able to appreciate it. Wow. So keep you, you be careful with the pearls of wisdom that you're about to pass on. Make sure that the person is capable of absorbing what it is that you want to say to them. Now, uh, I like this one. Good Samaritan. Um, actually, there was a, uh, one of the schools I worked at uh, back up in Washington State was called Good Samaritan School. It was named after a, a hospital, a health system. Um, when Jesus was speaking to Jewish people, when he used this surprising reference, to them, the Samaritans were a hated half-breed nation. There was nothing good about them, or so the Jews believed. In this story, a traveler had fallen among thieves and been robbed and beaten. Two religious leaders came along and looked the other way. 
But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. So Jesus used this expression as a model of contrast. A good Samaritan is a person who helps someone, especially a stranger. And this meaning carries on today. A good Samaritan, we often hear about somebody helping change a tire on the side of the road or, you know, helping somebody with gas. Or, along, the new, right. along the term of pay it forward. Right, pay it forward. We, right. we, we use that on, uh, on our kindness episode uh, yep. last year. Now, this, this, uh, quote, this uh, expression gets misquoted a lot. A lot of people you may have heard of, money is the root of all evil. But that's Ooh. not actually the quote. Um, it's actually the love of money, money is, is the, the root of all evil. Uh, this line from First Timothy clearly states that it is the love of money above all other considerations that eventually leads to the downfall. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered far from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That was from First Timothy. I've heard an interesting you know, explanation of that one once. It was money isn't money just helps a person show who they really are. Right. If yeah. they're a, if they're a good person or or if they're a kind person, that just it'll be used for good things. Yeah. Expanded right, upon right. upon that. But if someone is using it for for somewhat of an evil or, or more of what they're internally is by holding on to it or that kind of stuff that just right. expounds upon that. Well, and, and it also says too, that it's the root of all kinds of evil, which is yeah. true. It absolutely is true, yep. but it's not the root of all evil because there's a lot yeah. of things that, that happen that money doesn't have anything right. to do with. Yeah. Exactly. That doesn't have anything to do with money, but it's definitely evil. It's so. definitely the person. It's often somewhere lurking around this. Some of the causes though, I bet in, right. in many cases for sure. Um, now, this, this last one that we're taking from the Bible is uh, one I've always uh, liked uh, the image of. It's called Struck on the Road to Damascus. You might have heard somebody say that and wondered what that means. Uh, yeah, the reference is to the Apostle Paul, who was initially not a follower of Christ. In That's fact, an understatement. In fact, yeah. <laughs> he was a, a well-known persecutor of those who were. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christian believers in that city when suddenly he was struck by a bright light as Jesus began speaking to him. His con uh, con conversion occurred right there on the road. This expression indicates a divine revelation or an enlightenment that totally changes one life, being struck on the road to Damascus. Hmm. So again, we want to thank Dr. DeNova and WorldHistory.org for allowing us to quote from their fine article. Thank yes, you. thank you. Okay, so most of us know the term white elephant through a crazy Christmas tradition of bringing a random and right. weird <laughs> item to a Christmas celebration or to be uh, traded in a gift exchange game. Mm -hmm. Usually the weirder the gift, the better. Right. <clears throat> the definition of a white elephant We should have is... done that last Christmas because we got that game. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we'll do next Christmas. <laughs> next time we're all going to bring that game yeah. as the white elephant. <laughs> That's right. I still have it. No, you can bring that, that to a different party. Don't bring it back to our party. <laughs> Okay, so so white elephant is uh, uh I lost my place. It's, You're an Sorry. <laughs> it's an inconvenient thing that one does not know how to get rid of, like that game. Uh, very apt description of what you usually end up with in a white elephant gift exchange, as the game is more about the silliness and fun than meaningful gift giving. Yep. <clears throat> According to Wikipedia, the term derives from the sacred white elephants kept by South Asian mon uh, monarchs in Burma, Thailand, Laos, and Cambodia. Cambodia. To possess a white elephant was, and, is, and still is in some places, regarded as a sign that the monarch reigned with justice and power, and that the kingdom was blessed with peace and prosperity. 
Because the animals were considered sacred and laws protected them from labor, receiving a gift of a white elephant from a monarch was simultaneously a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. It was a blessing because the animal was sacred and a sign of the monarch's favor, and a curse because the recipient now had an expensive to maintain animal that he couldn't give away and couldn't put to much practical use. And I also heard that sometimes they were given strategically. Like, you know, if you wanted to to kind of burden you with this. Exactly. Exactly. You're doing such a great job. Here's an elephant. Yeah, kind of a passive aggressive (laughs) thing. Can we we talk about the elephant in the room? (laughs) (laughs) That's another sign. My dad dad had an often broken down pickup truck that he referred to as his white elephant. I'm not sure what (laughs) reference it is. But anyway. Okay, so knocking on wood, um, also the phrase touching wood is a superstitious tradition of literally touching, tapping, or knocking on wood, or merely merely stating that one is doing or intending to do so, <laughs> or hoping that you can find some. Reference. Right, yeah. true. Knocking, yeah, I've, I've like <laughs> I've said that, and then looked around. Oh wait, this yeah, is this is you know knock on formica. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> that works. <laughs> um, but it's done to avoid tempting fate after making a favorable prediction or boast or declaration concerning one at death or other unfavorable situations. So according to Wikipedia, this originates with Christianity. I had no idea. Hmm. I didn't know where this came from. And links the practice to wooden crucifixes and the idea oh, okay. that the Christian cross would provide supernatural protection. I got so you. it's kind of like touch. Yeah. If you touch the, the crucifix and right. I guess just touching wood in right. general. Well, um, Alice in Wonderland, let's talk about that. We talked about how um, the Bible provided a lot of things, and later we're going to talk about Shakespeare, right. words that came from Shakespeare. But a little bit more modernly, uh, there's a lot of things about Lewis Carroll's Alice yeah. in, uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland That's right. that brought a lot of things. And it's hard to, to truly appreciate the impact that the children's story has made on modern culture. Mm-hmm. It was the first of its kind since children's literature to date had been written more from the standpoint of presenting a moral lesson than uh, than entertainment or the playful experimentation <laughs> of imagination. Very playful yeah. <laughs> experimentation of, of imagination. I can still see the old Disney version of this in my mind yeah. as you're talking about yeah. this with Alice. You know. The Wonderland experience also brought certain phrases into everyday language, such as going down the rabbit hole. Going down the rabbit hole, right. I go down that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Almost immediately. Well, And it's interesting because uh, since, well, since it first came out, almost immediately after the publication of Alice's Adventures, the term down the rabbit hole became a well-used phrase, meaning something that transports mm-hmm. someone into a wonderfully or worryingly surreal state or situation but it's changed over time yes yeah it's morphed into now meaning delving deeply into a subject to the extent of losing track of time or surroundings or There's, sanity yeah <laughs> so like like true crime i get onto web sleuths i try to avoid web sleuths which is an online community of, of like armchair yeah. you know people and uh and i try to avoid it because i'll look up and i'm like oh wait four hours has gone yeah. by uh, <laughs> wait it's, it's tomorrow yeah uh-huh. Um, the term "mad as a hatter," okay, coming from the character of the Mad Hatter, right, is for someone used in this room. 
As <laughs> 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 used to say that something's not just regular crazy, but really, really, really crazy. I think that most people I are aware uh-huh, <laughs> that that hatters, most people know that hatters were often plagued with dementia caused by the mercury used in hat making. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. That's oh, you didn't know that. I, I thought know. that was kind of common yeah. knowledge. The term has been used in or has been in use since 1835 to describe the medical condition of uh, of it affecting hat makers. Hmm. But something you may not know is that Lewis Carroll was the first children's book author to license his character for use in other products. So the characters, such as Alice and the oh. Mad Hatter, had individual lives. Right. This leads to what is known as, this is interesting, I didn't know this, the Frozen effect okay. after the Disney movie, which is where the characters become familiar to a group of people wider than just the readership of the book or the, oh, the wow. okay. demographics yeah. of, of the audience right. of a movie yeah. or whatever. Um, so, so not only did he write this children's book that's entertaining yep. and not a moral lesson, his characters just kind of came to life and, and stay, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Um, and then the phrase curiouser and curiouser, oh, yeah, a no, quote that. from mm-hmm. Alice that we here at Remnants do can certainly appreciate. Yes. It's when she eats something and grows extremely tall and she exclaims in amazement, curiouser and curiouser. Mm-hmm. And finally, one of my favorite words, jabberwocky. Jabberwocky. Refers to meaningless speech and is something my children were experts at as toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> I got my info from uh, mentalfloss.com. All right. Now, let's shift over to the Bard of Avon, a.k.a. William Shakespeare. From a website called yourdictionary.com, we find a terrific article titled 40 Common Words and Phrases from William Shakespeare. Much of the following information is paraphrased from that article. As mentioned earlier, Shakespeare lived from 1564 to 1616. He wrote at least 38 plays and over 150 short stories. He is believed to have introduced over a thousand words and phrases into the English language. He was definitely a master of the English language. Though he may not have invented all of these, he was certainly the first to write them down. And here are some of the phrases that we're still using today. Um, The first one, all that glitters is not gold. Okay, we're fudging a little bit here. The original <laughs> yeah, quote right. from the Merchant of Venice reads, All that glisters is not gold. Which is such a weird word, glisters. Yeah, glisters. I guess yeah. it's kind of maybe glistens, you know, and then uh, something like that. Anyway, uh, we've somewhat modernized this to glitters. Uh, we generally use the term after we discover that something that looks good at first turns out not to be so good after all. There's even a literal mineral meaning here, as many a gold mine uh, miner was often tricked by iron pyrite or, quote, fool's gold. So That's all funny. that glitters, even in digging for gold, was not actually or gold. Or the grass isn't always greener uh, okay. <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Now, clothes make the man. This phrase from Hamlet implies that the way a person dresses can sometimes tell you about who they are as a person. Of course, this is not always the case. You might remember from uh, our Positively Presidential episode last year, the case of General Zachary Taylor, who didn't like military pomp and uniform. And uh, before he was president, he was General Zachary Taylor. At one point, a young West Point graduate mistook the general for an old farmer and called him Old Codger. And uh, (laughs) first time you met him, so that was a little bit of embarrassing. Now, I bet you can relate to this one, uh, Leah. Eating me out of house and home. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> with uh, all the kids you've got over there. 
this phrase from Henry the Henry the Fourth Act Two is sometime uh, is something that uh, the parents of many teenagers can identify with. Those kids have eaten so much that there's no food left in the house. <laughs> and then a laughing stock. No, it has nothing to do with raising hyenas for agriculture. This phrase from the Merry Wives of Windsor means to be made fun of or the butt of some joke. I'll be the laughing stock. Now, I like this next one. Um, I've heard it a lot, but I didn't realize it was Shakespeare and really what it meant. But uh, in a pickle. Ah, uh, the humble pickle. You know, historians believe that as long ago as 2400 B.C., the Mesopotamians began the practice of soaking cucumbers in vinegar and sealing them in crockery jars. This is one of the oldest methods of food preservation. Cleopatra swore they were a major part of her healthy diet. Julius Caesar believed that they would make his troops strong. Christopher Columbus loved traveling with them because they could survive long journeys and help prevent scurvy. So how did this wonder food develop such a negative image as in a pickle? Well, in Shakespeare's The Tempest, Alonzo says, How camest thou in this pickle? To which... Trinculo answers, I have been in such a pickle since I saw you last. And now Shakespeare may have borrowed a little bit from the Dutch phrase, sitting in the pickle, which means to be intoxicated. <laughs> He's brined. <laughs> He's pickled. So today the phrase means to be in trouble or in a situation that you cannot easily get out of. Now, my personal theory has something to do with the fact that pickle jars can be hard to open, too, but that's just what uh, what I'm thinking. <laughs> now, how about It's Greek to Me? Uh, do you remember the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? It was uh, popular about in the early 2000s, I oh, think. Oh, yeah. I love that movie. The bride's father was very proud of his Greek heritage. He was always saying, you give me any word and I show you how that word to come from the Greek. <laughs> he may have been exaggerating a bit, but the truth is that many of our words do have Greek roots dating back to the first century. In fact, the New Testament of the Bible was written in Greek, but, of course, language changes over time. Today, only those who have spent extensive time studying can understand Greek. The phrase, it's Greek to me, from Julius Caesar, means that you are admitting that you do not know or you do not understand something. Now, I really didn't know about this one until I uh, did this research, but the somewhat grisly phrase, pound of flesh, comes from Shakespeare's The Tempest, saying that someone demands their pound of flesh means that they are intent on getting something they are entitled to, even if it causes distress to someone else. I'm talking about you, bank overdraft fees. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> I'm talking about you, $300 ticket for rolling through a stop sign. Yes, you I got did one what? of those. <laughs> I, did, I got one of those in my right in front of my house the other day, <laughs> a couple months ago. And I'm talking about you, ridiculous HOA fees. Oh, yeah. rules. I mean, rules. Yeah, rules. Sure. HOA rules. Yeah. So, okay, so I thought this came from the Bible, like, uh, an H eye for an H eye. H no, rules? not the HOA yeah. rules. No, no, it's but, not biblical. <laughs> but the the pound of flesh. They to enforce them like that, but, yeah. <laughs> right? I thought it was it was related to eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, pound kind of, of flesh. Thing. Yeah. Like I knew it wasn't mentioned, but right. but I thought that's where it, it had come from. No, from uh, from let's see, which play was it? Oh yeah, it was from the Tempest. The Tempest. Tempest. Yeah, the, the Tempest. Tempest. Yeah. Now I like this one though. Such stuff as dreams are made on. No, I'm not talking about the creamy Oreo filling, though mm. that does come close. Yes. And it's evil. Uh, the phrase from The Tempest also refers to something that is so good that it's just like a dream. Hey, you remember in our sleep episode uh, a few months ago, we quoted Dr. Seuss as saying, quote, 
You know that you're in love when you can't fall asleep because reality yeah, is finally better than your dreams. That's right. Well, I'm fortunate to have married the girl of my dreams, so I can identify with this Aww. phrase. Oh, we love Judy, too. Amen. That's right. So did either of you guys have a mullet hairstyle? Uh, can't say I did. No. No? no? Did. <laughs> or you're just not, not no, admitting it? No, I never grew a mullet. <laughs> no, never had one. <laughs> well, everyone knows what the funky hairstyle style looked like. This It actually kind of started in the 70s, gained popularity in the 80s, and managed to hang on well into the 90s. Yeah. Uh, business in the front, party in the back. <laughs> That's what I heard. But do you know where the word came from? Is it a Canadian word? No. Kind of. Well, you know what? Maybe. Here's the thing. That while the hairstyle had already become a thing, the Beastie Boys oh, okay. coined the word mullet with their 1994 release of the word, or of the song, rather, Mullet Head, okay. about the iconic haircut. Talking about razor guard guards, the song goes, number one on the side and don't touch the back, and number six on the top and don't cut it whack, Jack. <laughs> 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 I like me some Beastie Boys. Yeah. And I have no idea where they got their term for it. But before their song, Mullet Head, um, Mullet Head referred to a type of North American freshwater fish with a large flat head. And then it also referred to someone stupid. So that may have come I, from I think that's Canada. a Canadian fish, I think. Yeah, yeah, might mullet, have been. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, it's up there. I think that's where I got that, that idea. That's so. funny. <laughs> now, here's a, a weird word, tawdry. It's not Audrey. often used anymore, but its origin was so interesting that I wanted to include it. It means showy but cheap and of poor quality, usually mm. referring to like jewelry or accessories. Right. So lace necklaces were a, an item customarily sold at an annual East Anglian Fair on October 17th commemorating St. Audrey. She was canonized queen of Northumbria. Northumbria. Okay. Who died in uh, 760, I'm sorry, 679. There's my dyslexia mm -hmm. acting up. Her association with lace necklaces is that she supposedly died of a throat cancer, hmm. which, I mean, this whole saint thing is Ooh. weird, um, which she considered God's punishment for her youthful stylishness. She is hmm. quoted as saying, I know of a surety that I deservedly bear the weight of my trouble on my neck, for I remember that when I was a young maiden, I bore it on the needless weight of necklaces. And therefore, I believe that the divine goodness would have me endure the pain in my neck, pain in the neck, mm, okay. uh, that I may be so absolved from the guilt of my needless levity, having now, instead of gold and pearls, the fiery heat of a tumor rising on my oh, neck. Nice. So, like, her vanity in the youth is right. what she's regretting. Yeah. The trinkets sold at the celebrations were called St. Audrey's necklaces and later shortened to... Tawdry's necklaces. So oh. like they let, they kept the tea from the saint. It's a Condra's. Oh, yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. And so if something is tawdry. It's kind of gaudy and, and worthless. And away I from, have. Away from me with those tawdry bubbles. That's right. I have a niece named Audrey. I need to tell her about this. <laughs> <laughs> and now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. Okay, so for today's oddity du jour, do you know what I'm talking about when I say Pyrex? Yeah, I mean, Pyrex. You know, yeah. Uh, Microwavable dishes. It's right. Yeah, it's the glassware right. you probably have in your kitchen right now. Right. Yeah, pretty much. According to Wikipedia, Pyrex actually, actually came before the microwave. Yeah, very sure. It can, um, it can do anything in them. It's a brand introduced by Corning Incorporated in 1915 for a line of clear, low thermal expansion borosilicate glass. Okay. Borosilicate glass contains boron, boron trioxide, which creates a special glass 
that will not crack under extreme temperature changes like regular glass. I've put boiling water in a a glass (laughs) pitcher before and had the bottom drop out of it. Mm. It was developed for use in laboratories, but Corning Incorporated saw the potential for using it to produce durable kitchenware for use in the oven. Um, Later, when the dishwasher and, of course, the microwave became common household appliances, there was no worry that they would damage the resilient cookware. You probably have at least one piece of Pyrex in your kitchen now, and your mother and grandmother likely had some, too. Right. You might not be aware of it, but Pyrex has changed over time. The borosilicate glass formula is actually much more heat resistant than it has to be for regular at-home kitchens. So in 1998, when Corning sold the brand to World Kitchens, they started making the kitchenware from tempered soda lime glass, a formula that's durable enough for kitchen use for ovens, but not for laboratory-type yeah. thermal temperatures. Home like, use only. Yeah. Exactly. So like I said, you probably wouldn't be aware of it. And you can't tell the difference between the old and the new by looking at it. But those who were painfully aware of the industry change were the entrepreneurial souls that made their living from producing recreational pharmaceuticals. Oh, no. That's right. The crack cocaine industry took the change Mm. very hard. Wow. As it turns out, turning cocaine into crack requires bringing the solution of water and powdered cocaine to a very high temperature and then rapidly cooling it. Do you ever think that listening to Remnants do would <laughs> give you education in creating a side hustle? Well, no, we don't want to go there, but anyway. <laughs> for years, crack makers would use the borosilicate glass uh, Pyrex for their illicit needs. And when the industry change happened, though, many illegal substance producers were injured when the soda lime glass would shatter, shatter. from the thir- thermal blow. shock. Yeah, exactly. yes. That's right. No worries, though. The crack cocaine industry is adaptive and quickly switched over <laughs> to to stealing laboratory supplies for the mm. clandestine operations. You know, I have broken a Pyrex before, and they like shatter. Just, oh, listen, yeah. all over. Yeah, it goes like, everywhere. Little bitty pieces everywhere. I I mm. dropped a, a measuring cup one time, and it it yeah. landed on my tile floor, bounced up intact, and I was like. Oh, and then it just shattered all over the state of Texas. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm still finding pieces of yeah, it. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, you'll still find them for even if you sweep and sweep, they'll still show up. Oh, and then and tiny, tiny pieces like sand. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, I got my info from nowiknow.com and Wikipedia. Uh, that sounds like a good website, nowiknow.com. If you need it looking for a sponsor. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> now let's get back to Shakespeare. I've heard this expression a few times. The lady doth protest too much. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. This famous saying from Hamlet was spoken by Queen Gertrude in response to the insincere overacting of another character who was accused of a misdeed. It has come to indicate doubt of a person's sincerity regarding a strong denial. It implies that someone who vehemently denies something is hiding the truth. Or as my elementary PE teacher, Ms. Nip, used to say, Guilty dog barks first. So, you know. <laughs> I've never heard that. He did it. <laughs> oh, no. I had a little self confession going about my wild uh, younger days. Oh, no. <laughs> Too much of a good thing. Ah, uh, yes. Halloween. We mentioned Oreos a few minutes ago. <laughs> uh, mentioned Oreos a few minutes ago. And so, you know, yeah. When I went off to college, I just went completely wild. Yes. I went to the store and bought a package of Oreos and a quart of milk, <laughs> took them back to my dorm room, and down the whole delicious mess all in one sitting. It was really quite wonderful until the middle of the night when I was started to re- receive hate mail from my stomach. <laughs> and the phrase uh, from As You Like It 
in capsules what I discovered that night that I indulged in too much of a good thing. Oh, yeah. At least it wasn't goes down, must come up. (laughs) (laughs) Now, wear one's heart on one's sleeve. This is an interesting saying. This phrase from Othello refers to a person who openly shows their emotions. It can also refer to a person who is a hopeless romantic. They are open and honest about how they feel. Now, there is another expression that's more recent, and I wasn't aware of this one, but it's according to UrbanDictionary.com, the opposite of wearing your heart on your sleeve is wearing your heart on your cheek. Have you oh, ever heard of wearing your I heart on your cheek? I've never heard of that. I haven't heard of this one. Evidently, in some quarters, this, be- this, person, uh, this means that a person is uh, keeping their emotion hidden in order to keep from getting hurt, wearing their heart on their cheek. Hmm. Now, if you've ever been on a foolish and hopeless pursuit uh, of something unattainable, well, then you've been on a wild goose chase. Um, This phrase comes from Romeo and Juliet. Uh, The character Mercutio, M-E-R-C-U-T-I-O, is in a battle of wits with Romeo. He throws in the towel by saying, quote, Nay, if thy wits run the wild goose chase, I am done. For thou hast more of the wild goose in one of thy wits than I have in all of mine. Uh, <laughs> quite, awesome. a, it's quite a submission speech, I think. Anyways, that was anyway. really witty. And wild. Here, here in South Texas, that's called a snipe hunt. A snipe hunt, yeah. <laughs> you ever been on the snipe hunt, right. Now, what's done is done. The phrase from Macbeth indicates that when something is done, there's no going back. You simply must deal with the consequences. There's no do-overs. Not like, uh, life is not like golf. You can't take a mulligan. What's done is done. And then, I didn't realize this one, uh, one fell swoop. Oh. You ever have something sudden happen in, in one fell swoop? Well, that phrase comes courtesy of Macbeth. In Shakespeare's time, the word fell, F-E-L-L, meant evil. So only bad things happened in one fell swoop. It doesn't specifically have to be a mad king murdered my wife and children bad, but Shakespeare was kind of old school <laughs> like that. And swoop makes me think of, of the Nike logo. Ooh, right? That's a swoosh. I know, that's a swoosh. Sorry, okay. one fell swoosh. By the way, Nike. Well, never mind. <laughs> um, now, in addition to these phrases, yourdictionary.com credits Shakespeare with inventing many words that we still use today. And among these, or some of these I think are surprising that they were actually Shakespeare uh, development uh, inventions. Admirable. Really? Yeah, something that deserves respect or admiration. Admirable. Auspicious. Favorable, promising success or a a good omen. Baseless. Without a foundation. Not based in fact. Barefaced. That would be like in a barefaced lie. Shameless. Without concealing or disguise. And I think it's it's more... Uh, even further now, bold face. Bold face, yeah, I've heard bold face lying, you know, bare face, bold <clears> face. <throat> Clanger, this is a loud clanging sound. Now, this one surprised me. Dawn. Really? Yeah, the appearance of light uh, when the sun rises. Huh. Yeah, was dawn. That was a Shakespearean invention, yeah. Dexterously, I mean, it's meaning skillfully, uh, especially in the use of hands, or also uh, e- even in your mind. Dwindle. To get smaller, to diminish, often used in describing money, money is a dwindling away. Hostile, an unfriendly person or demean or unfriendly demeanor, meaning to be hostile. Another Shakespearean. This one surprised me. Lonely, you know, to be alone. Huh. Multitudinous, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like a lot that. or a great number, and of course, ode, ode, like a lyrical poem. 
Wait, going back to multi multitudinous. Yeah. Okay, so that reminds me of the word, um, and I don't know if it, it existed before the internet or whatever, but embiggen. Have you heard of that? Like you can click on a on a photograph to embiggen it. Embiggen to make it bigger. Embiggen. <laughs> I have not bigger seen that. Resolution. One. Yeah. Enlarge. Embiggen. Yeah. Nope. Enbiggen. I've heard of embiggen. Oh, okay. I've seen it in several different places. It's okay. Still enlarged. I'll watch for that. One. <laughs> Speaking of enlarged, how about overblown? Pretentious or outrageous? That's another Shakespearean word. Overblown. Sanctimonious. Oh, yes. Pretending to be very religious or righteous. How about this one? Skim milk. That was a, yeah. Milk where fat is removed. It was a Shakespearean uh, development. And, of course, watchdog. A person or a group that keeps a close watch to discover wrong or illegal activity. All those coming uh, to us from... The Bard of Avon. Thank that you, is Facebook. that is very That's... interesting. Which it it, it it occurs to me like if there's that many new words, yeah. how did anybody understand what he was talking about? <laughs> right. You probably, know? probably. Well, sometimes they might have been combined. Sometimes <laughs> they might have been spoken. But he was the like I said, well, the first one to write them down. Well, so. like lonely. I wonder if the word alone, alone existed, yeah. and then he yeah, yeah. So they would understand lonely, that from right. context. But okay, so when we ask someone who is uncharacteristic uncharacteristically quiet cat got your tongue it brings to mind at least for me the morbid idea of a house cat feasting on someone's severed tongue right yeah they totally will the phrase has nothing to do with feline animals though instead it refers to being whipped into submission by a cat of nine tails a leather whip with nine separate strands often used on board a ship to keep the crew in line, right? Yes, that would work. But that's just one origin story. Still another does refer to a feline, specifically a witch's cat. Ah, yeah. In which case, overtly religious people who were afraid of anything to do with witchcraft would say, cat got your tongue, referring to an actual cat stealing your tongue. Cure weird vision I have of bloody cat feast. <laughs> um, but some say the saying goes back even further to ancient Egypt where the cat was worshipped. People who were accused of lying or blaspheming were punished by having their tongues cut out. Hmm. And then the offending organ would be thrown to the cats as food. Anyway, you slice it. It's a gruesome phrase. Yeah. And, and I got that info from allthatsinteresting.com. That's that's an interesting one. And, and cats themselves are... are um... Brutal. <laughs> I've had some they're that were sweet, brutal. But also, brutal. I, have, I have some that were they're very sweet and friendly, but then I've also had some that were, you know, very pretty temperamental. That were, you know, I used to tell people we were harboring a terrorist because this one cat came in, <laughs> came in with uh, something new dead every other day, you know. So. Okay, so I had the idea of covering the word mesmerize. Oh, I think we talked about this once before. Yeah, from when I mentioned the word a few episodes back and you had no idea that it came from the name of a man that uh, invented or discovered hypnotism. Yeah. It was the Mysterious People episode and we were discussing Phil's favorite person, Count St. Germain. That's right. Who was a contemporary of Franz Anton Mesmer. Mesmer. The the origin of the term mesmerize dates back to Franz Anton Mesmer, an 18th century physician in Vienna who founded a therapeutic movement called Mesmerism. In his dissertation, Mesmer proposed the existence, okay, listen, stay with me here, the existence of an invisible fluid in the body that reacts to the gravitational force of the planets and allows one person to hypnotize the other. I don't quite follow how that works, Mm -hmm. but Anton Mesmer was very popular in Parisian high society in the late 1770s. Opinion was divided over whether Mesmer was a genius 
or quack. Whatever the case, his name lives on, and mesmerism is still used synonymously with hypnotism. I was mesmerized by watching watching that. And I got that from an article, a 2007 article by Don Glass for IndianaPublicMedia.org. Oh, boy, I've heard this last one a few times when I was growing up. And finally, we end with the phrase that makes me laugh anytime I hear it. Smack dab. In the middle. (laughs) As in, I place this book smack dab in the middle of the bookshelf. It's such a weird phrase. Well, I grew up smack dab in the middle of Texas. (laughs) Uh, Meaning exactly. Okay, so the phrase means exactly or precisely and is most often used with in the middle. middle. Right, in the middle. Because you're not smack dab at the beginning or smack dab at the the end. That's right. You just don't get smack dab. Smack dab in the middle. You get smack dabbed in the middle. And no one, and I mean no one, even takes a stab at where that originated. (laughs) (laughs) But according to idioms.com, it's known that uh, smack dab first appeared in print in 1892 in an early American publication, which was named Dialect Notes. The phrase is most likely uniquely American as it's not often found in use anywhere else. I I was going to put it into Mark Twain or something. You know what? Yeah, I can see it. It sounds very slapdashedly (laughs) Yankee-like. Right, for sure. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the Trivia Challenge. All right, folks, you know how this goes. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. The first person to do all of that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. And remember, we are opening up our trivia challenge up to school kids. If your classroom listens to Remnant Stew and they want to answer the trivia questions, send us an email with their answer to staycurious at remnantstew.com. If your class wins, we'll send a nice little care package to the class. Okay, so what phrase uses every letter in the alphabet and is used to show what a particular font looks like? Oh, that's every letter in the alphabet. Wow. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, okay. I see it. (laughs) You got the answer right there. Hmm. Yeah. I thought, what is it? Oh, I'll get you. Yeah, very good. All right, folks, thanks for listening and spending time with us again. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Remnants 2 Podcast. You can also send us an email to say hi or suggest a topic for a future episode at staycurious at remnantstew.com. We'd love to hear from you. Remnants 2 is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode along with commentary by our audio producer, Philip Sinkbell. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. Special thanks goes out to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gold. Before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head on over to Apple Music and leave us a review. Share Remnant Stew with your friend, your family, your English teacher, your lexicographer, and Noah Webster if you run into him. Until next time, remember, choose to be kind and And always stay stay curious. curious.